All right, so we're uh, starting um, part, uh, sorry, section two of uh, chapter one, part two of on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, so we did uh, the end of, um, or we did the introduction to the part last time and then uh, section one of the first chapter. Uh, so now we're going to start on section two uh, and see how far we get. Uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to finish the whole chapter today. Uh, we'll see. Um, so I'll start reading and then we'll just go around. Section two, the phase shift from the primitive magical unity. It is therefore necessary to begin with the primitive magical unity of the relations of man and the world in order to understand the true relation of techniques to the other functions of human thought. It is through this examination that it is possible to grasp why philosophical thought must realize the integration of the reality of techniques into culture, which is possible only by revealing the sense of the genesis of techniques through the foundation of a technology. It is only then that the dis disparity between techniques and religion will be attenuated, which is detrimental to the intention of a refle reflexive synthesis of knowledge and ethics. Philosophy must found technology, which is the ecumenism of techniques, for the sciences and ethics to be able to meet in reflection. A unity of techniques and a unity of religious thought must precede the splitting of each of these forms of thought into a theoretical mode and a practical mode. So this is uh, just continuing off of what we saw last time about the, um, the series of different modes of existence that um, are generated through these splits into form and ground or uh, or background or whatever you want however you want to translate um, uh, so then um, so he argues about that in order for this um, split to be compatible with the unity of human existence as a whole and there has to be an, a, a contrary tendency towards reuniting the activities that are split uh, into the form and ground. Um, so uh, each stage of the, the split is accompanied by a stage of uh, reunification that follows it. Um, and he argues that philosophy is the, the sort of the last stage of reunification. Um, so if we have that diagram that we had last week, um, philosophy unites uh, uh, right at the bottom of that diagram. Uh, if I can bring it up, yeah. So philosophy is um, uniting all of the different activities because it's coming at the last stage of the differentiation process. And then here in particular in this paragraph, he's pointing out or he's arguing that um, there's a, a need for a technology in the sense of a, a study of techniques and um, a, a grasping of the sense of the genesis of techniques. Um, in order to be able to found philosophy as a discipline that will um, unite uh, techniques and religion um, so that it will overcome the, the uh, fundamental dichotomy or the, the first split in um, the modes of existence and then philosophy um, will be um, philosophy requires that technology um, to exist in order for it to be able to carry out that unification I'd be curious to know what people think just on, just off the uh, off the top here about whether it's the case that a, re a re reunification would be something like the re reunification of like political theory and sociology with technology in the sense of like analytic social science or something as it gets projected into computers 
or whether you'd be more prone to sort of read the religion side as something like ideology in the sense of, you know, downloadable consciousness and the ways that we're talking about artificial intelligence and so on and so forth as a kind of magical sort of throwing forward of humankind, just whether people are reading religion as a kind of, reading that side as a kind of increasing secularization or whether it's one of these things where a kind of magical reading of technology is always sort of co-present with the technology. That's a, that's an interesting question. I hadn't uh, hadn't really thought about it in that way before. Um, I would say um, so. He he emphasized in the last section that um, each of these differentiations leaves something uh, behind of the previous level. So when the the magic mode of existence splits into um, religion and technology, or sorry, religion and techniques. Um, that doesn't exhaust the magical mode of existence. There's something of that magical mode that, that remains, um, that, that isn't exhausted in by that split. Um, so um, I think uh, when he's calling for this reunification of religion and technology, um, so there's a sense in which um, uh, here, let me let me think of what I'm trying to say here. Um, um, maybe it may be the yeah. case that we should talk about it later or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's possible that um, we'll sort of come to answer that question as we go through the text. Um, but uh, yeah, I think when he's talking about religion, so there's more development of the concept of religion in the uh, um, the individuation book. Um, and he has a, a, a sort of a, a layered account of religion. It's not like um, he doesn't have sort of a, a unificatory account of religion, that religion is this one thing. Um, but he, he points to different uh, types of religious figures, like the saint or the hero. Um, um, and uh, they, they each have sort of different roles and, and different types of individuation. Um, and uh, so <clears throat> the one one i guess point that's interesting in, in that uh, theory of religion that he develops in that book is um the role of um the sage um i think we discussed this a little bit um a couple weeks ago um but he he derives the figure of the sage from uh, uh technical knowledge um but uh technical knowledge in uh in the sense that it's treated as a, a mystery that you have to be initiated into um so this is something that's quite common across societies um, that have some sort of early uh, class division um, or w which tends to be um, realized in the form of uh, guilds or caste systems um, where you inherit your your uh, technical knowledge from your, your family um, or your position within the division of labor from your family. Uh, and then technical knowledge is treated as a, a sort of secrets um, that you have to be initiated into rather than something that is um, publicly available for the whole society. And uh, the, the sage um, is sort of descended from this figure of the, the, um, the kind of like a, a wizard who has this technical knowledge that is secret to the rest of society. Um, and the sage, um, through that technical knowledge that they have, they incorporate, um, they, they 
bring aspects of nature into society. So it's not so religion is not a purely social uh, function for Simon Dong. It's um, in that figure of the sage, uh, uh, religious activity has uh, some relation to nature outside of society, and the the sage brings that aspect of nature into society. Um, and so I think, sorry, that was a, a little bit of a, a long explanation, but I think it's uh, connected to your question here in that when he's talking about religion, um, it's not something that would be purely at the level of ideology, um, like uh, at the level of representations or, or beliefs or something along those lines. Um, uh, religion is a, um, a, a complex social function that includes um, a form of relationship to nature in the figure of the sage uh, as one of the one of the elements of religion, uh, according to Simon Dong. That's great. That's a that's that's good to know that that's that that level of depth is functioning uh, in the other book. It's one more reason to, that I'd want to read it next for sure. Thanks for the explanation. That's great. Yeah, there's um in the other book there's like it's a it's a very rich book. There's lots of different elements you can sort of pick up and and make connections to other um, other you know spheres of inquiry. Um, so I'm hoping that October uh, date comes uh, comes through, unlike the earlier one that I think was in August or or something like that that they ended up pushing. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. For sure. What's What's interesting to me about this paragraph is that it's starting with a therefore, which it kind of builds on that prior point about the um, the place of philosophical thought for Simundan, and it's kind of like autonomous, kind of like reflexive mode, I guess. Um, that he's kind of using using that as a condition for this claim about magic and these foundational claims um yeah so i think um yeah so that therefore obviously points back to the previous section um and that uh yeah that, that role of philosophy as as um reflexive uh thought so it's um there's a, a genesis of philosophy and like philosophy has a, a place within the the system of uh genesis of different modes of existence but then also philosophy, uh, its role is to grasp that genesis itself. Um, so it's a, the, the genesis of modes of thought is, um, is what philosophy grasps. And uh, so it, that's why it's reflexive. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph if uh, someone would like to volunteer. Sure, I can go. The genesis of a particular phase can be described in itself, but it cannot really be known along with its sense and consequently grasped in its postulation of unity unless it is placed back into the totality of the genesis as a phase in relation with other phases. This is why it is insufficient for understanding techniques to start from constituted technical objects. Objects appear at a certain moment, but technicity precedes them and goes beyond them. Technical objects result from an objectivation of technicity. They are produced by it, but technicity does not exhaust itself in the objects and is not entirely contained within them. Right, and this is also a point that he, he made in the last section as well. Um, and uh, I think I, I mentioned last time or, or drew, drew a connection back to the introduction where he, um, he argues against um, 
a theory of technicity that would start from constituted technical objects and then classify them by genus and species. Um, so in the introduction, he, he just gives a sort of empirical argument for why that doesn't work, because it, it um, groups technical objects that are they have a similar use, um, but their actual fundamental structure is very different. And, and then it's a, a, a technical object that have a similar fundamental structure will be separated into different categories because they have different uses. So that's, that's just sort of an empirical argument that he presents in the introduction. But then here um, in the last section and then in this paragraph, he gives um, a more uh, ontological type of argument for why that classification into genus and species is not um, an effective approach to uh, to grasping technicity. Um, so because it's uh, you're only staying at the level of the the constituted technical object, it doesn't allow you to grasp the genesis of technicity, which um, precedes the actual te constituted technical object and um, is is more than uh, uh, so there's there's more to technicity than is realized in the constituted technical object. This might be as good a place as any to to uh, put in a plug for the fact that the uh, Heidegger Basic Writings Group next week is is doing uh, uh, the question concerning technology. So just the, I I figured that this chapter or this segment would would probably be talking about that in a certain way, and so I thought I'd uh, throw in the fact that that's going to happen uh, next Friday at uh, six Eastern. Right. Yeah. Thanks. That's uh, that's useful um, because I think this. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to look at the the years. Uh, I'm not sure when uh, that essay came out. It was sometime in the 50s, I think. Um, the Heidegger essay. Um, so it's likely that Simon Don was aware of it, and um, um, you know that probably is part of what he's. Uh, sort of working with or against in in this part of the book in particular. Apparently, it was first uh, given it as the part of the Bremen lectures in 1949. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. The the publication I think was a few years after that, though. Like the um, um, yeah, I forget which collection uh, of uh, of uh, Heidegger's that it was published in, but. Uh, um, and then I'm not sure to what extent Simon Don would have read it in German or, or relied on the translation. Um, but um, yeah, so it would be, be interesting to look at the publication history and uh, try to trace you know, whether Simon Don would have been uh, available to, uh, or sorry, would have had available to him the, the text um, um, at the time he's writing this. Uh, right. So. Question concerning technology published in 1953. Uh, yeah, so that would be several years before, um, uh, about five years before um, the On the Mode of Technical Existence was was published. Um, so there would presumably be lots of time for Simon Don to have read that essay. Um, so again, I'm not sure how uh, how much he read German. Oh, and uh, so 61 is put in the chat um, that technicity is not entirely explicable in terms of technical objects seems to be the formative theme of this section. Um, yeah, so uh, we haven't uh, gotten too far into the section, but that's um, uh, or maybe of the part of the book, I, I would say maybe that's. Uh, oh, yes, the whole third part. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that's one of the, the sort of key takeaways. Um, so the 
the first part of the book is sort of an exemplification of what he means by that. Um, so the examining the process of concretization of a technical object um, or of a lineage of technical objects is um, is sort of like an existence proof of, of that thesis. Um, so he wants to show um, what it means to say that that technicity is prior to um, uh, the constituted technical object by showing that genesis um, and showing the the lineage of a technical object. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's right. The whole third part um, is uh, sort of uh, making that theme explicit that was sort of implicit in the first part. Okay, so I think uh, we can go on to the next paragraph then. I can go if you like. Sure, sounds good. If we eliminate the idea of a dialectical relation between successive stages of the relation of man and the world, then what could be the motor of the successive splits in the course of which technicity appears? It is possible to appeal to Gestalt theory and to generalize the relation it establishes between figure and ground. Gestalt theory derives its basic principle from the holomorphic schema of ancient philosophy, supported by modern considerations of physical morphogenesis. The structuration of a system would depend on spontaneous modifications tending toward a state of stable equilibrium. However, in reality, it seems that it would be necessary to distinguish between a stable equilibrium and a metastable equilibrium. The emergence of the distinction between figure and ground is indeed the result of a state of tension of the incompatibility of the system with itself from what one could call the oversaturation of the system. But structuration is not the discovery of the lowest level of equilibrium. Stable equilibrium in which all potential would be actualized would correspond to the death of any possibility of further transformation. Whereas living systems, those which precisely manifest the greater spontaneity of organization are systems of metastable equilibrium. The discovery of a structure is indeed at the very least a provisional resolution of incompatibilities, but it is not the destruction of potentials. The system continues to live and evolve. It is not degraded by the emergence of structure. It remains under tension and capable of modifying itself. All right, so this, this paragraph is again um, sort of a, a recap of uh, what we saw last time. Um, so. First, the, the um, rejection of uh, the dialectical model. Um, so last time he, he pointed out the differentiation of, of his model of the differentiation of phases from, uh, from dialectics um, in that um, in his model, there's no negative moment. Uh, there's, there's no uh, negativity as the motor of uh, development. Um, and there's no um, sort of uh, necessary progression to the the movement, so um, the phase doesn't um, uh, the phase doesn't necessarily lead to uh, uh, a further development. Uh, yeah, and so sixty one is put in the chat here. Phases replace dialectical moments. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Um, so each of the phases um, is a uh, corresponds to a dialectical moment, um, but unlike the dialectical moments, they don't necessarily lead into each other um, uh, because they they don't have that. Um, yeah, they don't have that uh, linearity. Um, and then he also suggests that in his model, there's not necessarily uh, 
a split into two phases. Um, you can have two or four or 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 ten or or whatever different number of, of phases um, at each split. Uh, so in his uh, schema that he's presented, it's always splitting into two, but he doesn't, um, or he says that that's not necessary. That's uh, I guess just a um, a contingent fact of the way that the split has has happened in history. Um, right, and so then after that, so he he sort of calls back to that criticism of dialectics from the last section, um, and then he brings up the theory uh, of form or Gestalt theory. Um, and then, uh, uh, so this is a criticism that he has also brought up before um, and has developed further in the individuation book. But uh, um, he, the, the point where he wants to differentiate himself from Gestalt theory is um, the, the notion of stable equilibrium, uh, where Gestalt theory um, characterizes the form uh, or the good form uh, as something that um, is the result is a stable equilibrium um, so it compares the the structuring of a, a perceptive scene into figure and, and ground um, it compares that to a physical process of, of morphogenesis that results in a, a form like the way a, a bubble forms in a spherical shape because of the, the surface tension um, um, and so it's it in doing so in, in making that comparison Gestalt theory um, treats the form as uh, something that is a, a stable equilibrium, uh, so it's the lowest state of potential energy. Whereas Simondon wants to treat form um, as a metastable equilibrium, so it's a, a, a stable, a temporarily stable state, but it's not the lowest state of, of potential energy. It still contains potential energy that uh, can be used to carry out work and to undergo further transformations. Um, so that, yeah, this is something we've seen before, but uh, just sort of a recap of uh, of what his criticism is. It seems like uh, he is juggling a few different approaches, uh, but it doesn't seem like he is juggling. Uh, uh, we perceive it as something totally original, like this way he writes. Uh, on the one hand, there's Gestalt theory uh, used to, to apply to history. There is uh, dialectics, Hegelian dialectics, uh, and uh, there is another figure, of course, Bergson, right, uh, which we encountered uh, in the last session. So it seems like there is a strange interplay between all these figures in the background. Yes, uh, I think that's right. Um, that he he has a an interesting way of um, of using um, other other thinkers and um, sort of incorporating them into his own thought. Um, and this is partly uh, related, to, I think, to his his bad habit of uh, not citing uh, his sources. Um, I think he he a lot of times sort of takes on ideas from someone or uh, another writer and then sort of incorporates them and then doesn't feel the need to uh, to actually cite that other writer. Um, which makes makes things harder for us, um, but uh, he does, um, yeah. So he 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 incorporates other thinkers into his own uh, thought in a in a creative way, I would say, um, rather than just sort of um, adopting theses from someone else. And sixty one, I put in the chat here, and the that the um, this was in relation to the um, 
the process of uh, formation of a metastable state, um, that it's kind of a contingent formal homeostasis. Um, uh, yeah, I think, um, so he does, he criticizes to some extent when he's talking about cybernetics, he criticizes the emphasis on homeostasis as, um, uh, so it's a related criticism, is, is the idea that homeostasis um, uh, produces or, or keeps an organism or a system at um, at a certain state. It, it just maintains stability, um, but that doesn't um, that doesn't account for the the possibility of transformation that the system has if it's a you know a living organism, for example. Um, so a living organism is capable not just of maintaining itself in a certain state, but also of undergoing change. Um, you know, of course, you know, examples like uh, a caterpillar undergoing a metamorphosis to become a butterfly, um, or you know, you can you can find tons of different examples of that um, in the uh, organic world. Um, so so yeah, to that extent, I think he would um, probably want to, uh, or he probably wouldn't use the term homeostasis for the process he's describing. Um, but it's it's sort of like a almost like a second order homeostasis or or a more open form of homeostasis. So it's uh, um, it's not preserving stability at uh, sort of a lowest level, but preserving uh, a stability that has openness for change built into it. Um, that's that's sort of the the structure of a a, a life process for him. Okay, so um, we can go on to the next um, couple paragraphs. Uh, there's one short one and then one longer one, so I'll read them together. Uh, where are we? Right. If one agrees to accept this corrective and replaces the notion of stability with that of metastability, it seems that Gestalt's theory can account for the fundamental stages of the coming into being of the relation between man and the world. Primitive magical unity is the relation of the vital connection between man and the world defining a universe that is at once subjective and objective prior to any distinction between the object and the subject, and consequently prior to any appearance of the separate object. One can conceive of the primitive mode of man's relation to the world as prior not only to the objectivation of the world, but even to the segregation of objective units in the field that will be the objective field. Man finds himself linked to a universe experienced at the milieu. The emergence of the object only occurs through the isolation and fragmentation of the mediation between man and the world. And according to the posited principle, this objectivation of a mediation must have as a correlative with respect to the primitive neutral center, the subjectivation of a mediation. The mediation between man and the world is objectivized as technical object, just as it is subjectivized as religious mediator. But this objectivation and subjectivation, which are, opposi which are opposition and complementarity, are preceded by an initial relation to the world, the magical stage, in which the mediation is not yet either subjectivized or objectivized nor fragmented or universalized, and is only the simplest and most fundamental of structurations of the milieu of a living being, the birth of a network of privileged points of exchange between the being and the milieu. It seems like there's a lot of like deeply psychological stuff going on in this paragraph, like going back from like object relations theory to kind of the primal scene, so to speak. Yeah, he's uh, so he is drawing on Gestalt psychology here, um, and one of the figures that he mentions in, uh, uh, yeah, in the individuation book and possibly in this book as well, I can't remember, um, is uh, Kurt Levin, um, who I don't really know. I haven't read any of his works, but um, I know that he introduces the idea of um, um, 
relational fields, um, so like uh, an objective field, um, and uh, um, the perceptual field would be structured in different ways. So um, uh, yeah, you'd have like a, a danger aspect of the field or a, a um, uh, an aspect of, uh, I don't know, attraction or whatever other, um, yeah, anyway, you have a structured field which has different um, valences built into it. Um, that's sort of the, the gist of it as far as I understand it. Um, and so I think that's a sort of what he's um, pointing to in this paragraph. Um, um, and the idea is that, um, or the, the sort of basic idea here is that the magical mode of existence precedes any separation between subject and object. Um, so you just have this field, um, it's not subjective or objective. Um, and then what, uh, what structures that field, and he just introduces uh, right in the last sentence, um, and we'll see further development of that, but it's um, the structure of that field is privileged points. Um, so you have a, 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 an organism um, in this field, um, and then there's privileged points within the fields that are um, the, that structure the field in relation to that organism. Uh, so we'll see further development of what that means later on. Uh, but that's yeah. So magic is is uh, what precedes the differentiation between subjective and objective. Is the, the basic um, point of this paragraph. Um, and yeah, then, and then maybe uh, another comment would be that, um, so he, he does point to, um, so this process of subjectivation and objectivation, or these two um, complementary processes are, um, are what result, uh, what produce um, uh, technicity and religion, uh, respectively. So the objectivation process produces technicity, and then the subjectivation process produces religion. Um, but that's that's sort of an anticipation of what we're going to see later on. So for now, we're just staying at the level of the, the magical field with its privileged points. And we're going to see what that structuring consists in in uh, the next few paragraphs. Would someone else like to read? Go again. The magical universe is already structured, but according to a mode prior to the segregation of object and subject. This primitive mode of structuration is one that distinguishes figure and ground by marking key points in the universe. If the universe were devoid of all structure, then the relation between the living being and its milieu could take place in a continuous time and a continuous space without any privileged moment or place. In fact, preceding the segregation of units, a reticulation of space and time that highlights privileged places and moments institutes itself as if all of man's power to act and all the world's ability to influence man were concentrated in these places and in these moments. These places and these moments keep hold of, concentrate, and express the forces contained in the ground, phone, of reality that supports them. These points and these moments are not separate realities. They draw their force from the ground they dominate, but they localize and focalize the attitude of the living vis-a-vis -vis its milieu. Right, so these privileged points are, are points in space and in time, um, as he's, he's uh, arguing here in this paragraph. Um, so what we can think of here is uh, religious sites, um, or I guess magical sites. Um, so you have a, a certain location where you have to perform a, a magical ritual, for example. Um, and then there's also often um, a time aspect that's associated with it. So whether it's like the, a new moon or, um, whatever other um, 
uh, or uh, you know the vernal equinox or, or something like that there are often uh, specific moments that are associated with magical um, uh, rituals or performances um, so yeah so we have these privileged points in space and in time uh, and that's what he's pointing to here and the other aspects to uh, to point out in this paragraph would be um, that in these privileged points the uh, the, the force or, or power or whoever you want to describe it um, of those those privileged points in space and time is uh, is drawn from the ground um, so the the points constitute the the form um, but what makes them part of this uh, sort of living mode of existence that that is magic is that they draw their their force from the ground um, which is sort of underlies those points um, so uh, they're not just sort of uh, dots on a map or something like that. They're they're points um, that that are uh, active in some way. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, I can read again. Um, okay. According to this general genetic hypothesis, we suppose that the primitive mode of existence of man in the world corresponds to a primitive union prior to any split of subjectivity and objectivity. The first structuration corresponding to the appearance of a figure and a ground in this mode of existence is the one that gives rise to the magical universe. The magical universe is structured according to the most primitive and meaningful of organizations, that of the reticulation of the world into privileged places and privileged moments. A privileged place, a place that has, that has a power, is one that drains from within itself all the force and efficacy of the domain it delimits. It summarizes and contains the force of a compact mass of reality. It summarizes and governs it as a high land governs and dominates a low land. The elevated peak is the lord of the mountain, just as the most impenetrable part of the woods is where all its reality resides. The magical world is thus made of a network of places and of things that have a power and that are bound to other things and other places that also have a power. This path, this enclosure, this temenos, contains all the force of the land, the key point of the reality and the spontaneity of things, as well as their availability. Actually, I'll continue with the next short paragraph that's tied to it. In such a network of key points of high places, there is a primitive lack of distinction between human reality and the reality of the objective world. These key points are real and objective, but they are that by which the human being is immediately bound to the world, both in order to be influenced by it and in order to act upon it. They are points of contact and of mutual mixed reality, places of exchange and of communication because they are formed from a knot between the two realities. So he gives um, some examples in this paragraph of uh, what would constitute a privileged place. So he, he points to the the uh, peak of a mountain, the the highest uh, highest peak in the a mountain range or in a hill, hilly area, um, or the the center, the densest region of a of a, a wood of a forest. Um, um, so these are privileged places in the sense that the the domain around them is structured by that that place um, is oriented towards that place. I'm not familiar with the the Greek word that he uses here, temenos. Um, I don't know if anyone else uh, has had a chance to look it up or or knows what it what it means. Uh, thank you, Liz Mason. Uh, temenos. Is a piece of land cut off and assigned as an official domain, especially to kings and chiefs, or a piece of land marked off from common uses and dedicated to a god, a sanctuary, holy grove, or holy precinct. Um, yeah, that seems uh, seems to fit with uh, 
um, what he's pointing to here. Um, so um, yeah, just a, a privileged piece of land that has a, a religious function or a, a piece of the geography or, or the environment that has some role in uh, in magic and ritual and uh, um, uh, in the relationship between the human being and its environment. And uh, in that second short paragraph at the, the bottom of 178, um, he points to the fact that these uh, these points form a network. Um, so is each each point is uh, sort of governs a, a region or, or dominates a, a region that surrounds it. Um, but it also is related to uh, the other points in some way that um, I guess we'll see further on uh, how that network operates. But uh, there's a there's some connection between these points. They aren't just sort of isolated um, in their surrounding. Just to draw a connection again to to Heidegger, this sounds you know some similar somewhat to the uh, to his uh, concept of the fourfold, right? The sort of a sort of sort of places that places that are that are kind of clearings that are sort of holy dimension in the sense of reaching out in a kind of transcendental way and yet being grounded uh, from the earth uh, and sort of. Uh, starting like a sort of constitutive sort of uh, spacing or and and temporalizing. Yeah, the uh, the the whole fourfold concept is uh, I think one of the more obscure aspects of Heidegger's work. So I, I wouldn't be too confident in making a, a comparison, but um, I definitely see what what you're going what you're uh, pointing to is the, there's that um, the differentiation or the the idea of the earth um, and uh, some sort of um, uh, yeah, production of uh, or generation of, of a, a space that is uh, sort of drawing from the earth. Um, uh, I think that's a similar type of um, motif as in Heidegger's text that, that talk about the fourfold. So we can go on to the next paragraph if someone would like to read. I can go again. Uh, and magical thought comes first. Since it corresponds to the simplest and most concrete, the most vast and flexible structuration, that of reticulation. Within the totality constituted by man and the world, a network of privileged points actualizing the insertion of human effort appears as an initial structure and through which the exchanges between man and the world take place. Each singular point concentrates within itself the capacity to command a part of the world that it specifically represents and whose reality it translates in communication with man. One could call these singular points the key points, commanding over the man-world relation in a reversible way, for the world influences man just as man influences the world. Such are the peaks of the mountain or certain naturally magical mountain passes because they govern a land. The heart of the forest, the center of a plain, are not only metaphorically or geometrically designed realities, they are realities that concentrate the natural powers as they focalize human effort. They are the figural structures in relation to the mass that supports them and constitutes their ground. Right, and this is um, maybe connected to a, a note that I didn't read uh, in the one of the last paragraphs where he, he points to, um, uh, so it's on the, at the on page 178, it's a note. Um, so it's uh, right after the phrase, the elevated peak is the Lord of the mountain. Uh, and then the note reads, not metaphorically, but really, it is toward it that the geological folding orients itself and the push that has edified the entire high plateau. The promontory is the firmest part of the chain eroded by the sea. Um, 
So what he's pointing to here is that these uh, these points, these uh, these key points, are are not um, they're not key just uh, in sort of um, in an arbitrary sense. It's not like human beings just arbitrarily decide to uh, pick certain points on a map or you know geometrically divide up uh, a country into regions or something like that. Um, these are points that have a, a natural reality um, and that uh, um, the human being, the, the relationship of human beings to their environment is structured by these points that exist, that have this natural um, prominence or, or uh, preeminence. It's strange to, uh, I don't know, it, it, to me, it, it, this really, I really love this paragraph. I, I find that it sort of runs very deeply against the grain of, of understanding a place as named in a lot of ways, because it's really about these kind of invisible forces or intensities that concentrate into a place uh, and 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 they're not, but they're not they're not really localizable or something. They're more like a kind of parameterized intensity that, after the fact, we name, and that like the intellection of naming it would would seem to like confuse or or somehow obscure that that sort of invisible intensity. I, I just think that that's like it's it's such an interesting uh, paragraph for for kind of um, indicating that. Yeah, I would think um, the function of assigning a name to a place would be something that would appear later on in, in the genesis, like maybe um, when we start to have uh, theoretical knowledge later on where you have uh, you know some sort of geographical knowledge that would assign names to different places. Um, but uh, at this point of the, of the genesis, um, we just have this uh, pre-subjective, uh, pre pre-objective, um, relationship between a uh, human being and the environment that is structured by uh, those points and there's a, a, a sort of two-way interchange of, uh, of uh, the way that the human being uh, acts on the environment and then the environment also acts on the human being through these points. You know, I, uh, I kind of hesitate to mention this, but um, it might be worthwhile to look into classical theories of of habit or natural habit as well. And especially in this kind of uh, um, in, invertible, in necessarily invertible relation um, of uh, the, ac the access point in which um, there's a structural role played by the, the relation of the person in their environment. Um, Hexis in Aristotelian uh, language, I think. It's been a while since I've looked at this stuff, but it seems very much to cover this kind of idea of natural powers or dispositions that play this structural role. Yeah, it's been a while since I looked at that as well. Um, so I'm not super confident on that, but um, I think, um, yeah, to my understanding, uh, Hexis in, in Aristotle has to do with um, it would be attributed to an individual being, whether it's an animal or or a human being. Um, uh, so it's it's a, a property of that being. Um, whereas what Simondon is pointing to here is um, a property of the relationship between the environment and the the living being. Um, so it's it's not um, yeah. So it's it's in that environment living being relationship that these uh, properties arise rather than in the living being itself. Um, 
so that's that's I think uh, a distinction between the Aristotelian and uh, and what Simon Dong is, is pointing to here. But uh, I could be wrong about uh, the way Aristotle uses that term. Yeah, the the writing surrounding Aristotelian hexis is a little bit strange because of, of the way that we we understand dispositions in in contemporary philosophy. I think, but I think that it's still probably a promising way to to kind of get to the deeper question. Um, but I don't know. I can't really um, I can't really point anyone in a specific direction besides possibly uh, Felix Reveson. Um, yeah, I'm kind of hesitant to do that as well, but I do think I do think that he he mean he means Texas in a certain kind of in way in which it necessarily intersects with the world and kind of provides the basis for kind of like a um, a primitive locality. I'm not sure though. I don't know. I I have to go look at it again. Yeah, that would be it. Would be worth um, looking at that and, and making the comparison whether whether there is a, that contrast I was pointing to or not. It would be interesting to um, establish that more clearly and uh, and make the distinction. Um, uh, and Burke has has posted in the chat here that there could be uh, I think there could be some resonance between key points and certain other non-European conceptions of space. Uh, I've been thinking of feng shui and Chinese geomancy. Uh, my knowledge is limited, though. Yes, my Knowledge is probably even more limited than yours. Um, I only know the most basic um, sort of concept of what feng shui is. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's an interesting suggestion um, uh, because yeah, so it, it does involve some sort of um, um, uh, idea of a structuring of space in terms of uh, something like energy or or um, um, power flowing through space. Um, and so there's different, each direction has a certain uh, relation to different types of energy um, and uh, the layout of a, of a, a room or a house or, or a building or whatever it is, um, structures the way the energy flows through that space. Um, and so that would be, it would be interesting to, uh, um, for someone who knows feng shui better than, than I do, um, to be able to, uh, you know, make that comparison and uh, and see to what extent it sort of uh, maps on to what Simon Don is describing here. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting suggestion. I just want to throw in, based on the conversations, the, the kind of ways that 61 and uh, and uh, and uh, Burke are are sort of mentioning things. Also, uh, uh, the work of George Gongulaim comes to mind. Uh, talk, the way that he sort of talks about uh, living beings uh, and their milieu. I, and I, I mean, I, I guess or I think that uh, Simon Don was either a student of Congolam or was influenced by him or something like that. And so that seems like it would be maybe another reference point worth worth mentioning here. Yeah, Congolam is uh, is actually mentioned in the uh, the preface to this book um, as having lent Simon Don some German book, rare German books that he couldn't get a hold of otherwise. So uh, they obviously had a, a, a pretty good um, working relationship. Um, and so yeah, he's, he's definitely drawing on, on his work as well, though I'm, I'm not uh, again, I'm not that familiar with with Kantiyam. I think I've only read one of his books. Did you want to say something, sixty-one? No, I was going to, but I thought better of it. I'm just looking at this this Aristotle stuff about it. There's some the stuff that makes me laugh, kind of. I don't know some of the ways that he describes things. Like it's it's like clearly it's impossible to have a having. <laughs> so maybe it's lost in translation a little bit, or 
uh, or something, but I, I find that kind of language kind of humorous, like this kind of like really investigating what, what is, what is the having? Can, can we have a having? Like, is this like a, a, an allowable circularity in reference? I don't know. There's just some funny aspects of this whole problem. Yeah, I think some stuff does get lost in translation, um, particularly with different tenses of the verb, um, which like from from Greek to English, they don't sort of map onto each other in a one to one way. There's like, um, yeah, different different tenses uh, and, and Aristotle's categories that he uses are, are pretty closely drawn from the verb tenses of uh, ancient Greek. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, it makes things difficult for translators. But uh, coming back to the text, um, um, but that, those were interesting digressions. But uh, yeah, we can come back to the text um, and uh, look at where are we? Um, uh, yes, okay. So I, I can read the next paragraph. When seeking to identify the remnants of magical thought in the context of the current conditions of life, we usually look at superstition as an example of the schemas of magical thought. Superstitions are, in fact, merely a degraded vestige of magical thought and can only mislead the search for its true essence. One ought, on the contrary, to refer to high, noble, and sacred forms of thought, requiring a fully enlightened effort in order to understand the sense of magical thought. Such is, for example, the affective, representative, and voluntary foundation that supports an ascent or an exploration. The desire for conquest and a sense of competition are perhaps a part of the motivation that enables one to go from common existence to these exceptional acts. But what is mostly at stake what one, when one invokes the desire for conquest is to legitimize an individual act for a community. In fact, the thought at work in the individual or the small group of those who realize an exceptional act is much more primitive and far richer. So this is an interesting uh, point here where he, he, um, he wants to distinguish magical thought from uh, superstition, um, which might be uh, sort of a, a tempting first comparison to make um, the idea that uh, that magical thought would consist in superstition, but he sees that as a, a sort of um, a degraded form of magical thought rather than um, sort of a, an essential form of magical thought. Um, and then he's pointing to um, the the project of of climbing a mountain as as something that we should use instead as our example of uh, of what magical thought consists in. Um, and uh, and he relates this to um, so this phrase. Um, to legitimize an individual act for a community, that's an interesting one. So it has the has the the idea um, that by by conquering a mountain or or by by climbing a mountain, you um, you sort of incorporate it into the the community. Um, this maybe points back to what I was describing earlier from the other book about the sage, how they the sage um, uh, incorporates a, a portion of uh, of natural reality into the community through their knowledge. Um, so it's a similar, I think, type of uh, process at work here, where the this um, conquest of a of a mountain or or whatever natural environment sort of incorporates it into the community in a in a certain way. Like George Mallory, who said he climbed uh, Everest because it was there. Right. I thought I thought that was uh, Edmund Hillary, but I I may be sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. Sorry, just, you may be right. It may be Edmund Hillary. I'm not sure. Well, either way, it doesn't really matter who it was. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a, a famous quote that, uh, yeah, so because this mountain is there, because the landscape is structured by this peak, 
um, therefore human human beings have to conquer it in order to incorporate it into their community. Um, and so this is uh, this is what he points to as being um, sort of the essence of magical thought. Um, and so it's interesting. So this this draws back also to what we were talking about earlier about how um, uh, magical thought is not uh, is not exhausted by that split into uh, technicity and religion that happens later on. Um, so there's still some uh, element of magical thought that remains uh, even after that split. So even in our contemporary world. Um, we we still have this element of magical thought that is present in this conquest of nature, um, uh, conquest of these um, uh, privileged points within nature. Can we take this uh, cosmological maybe? Uh, are, there, are there planets uh, that are uh, like key points? Uh, for instance, Mars is much more of a, a key point uh, than a humanly uninhabitable place. I don't know. Because this makes me think of Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Mars trilogy a bit. And they, uh, there, there is a central argument between two characters. Uh, one of them is for terraforming Mars, uh, saying this is for human consciousness. Uh, and the other one uh, is a geologist uh, who strictly opposes this uh, line of thinking. But uh, the first one wins at the end, uh, speaking in favor of human consciousness, the Mars being there for ter terraforming. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, suggestion. Um, so it seems like the Simon Don is uh, sort of limiting his, uh, his conceptualization of these privileged points to um, the terrestrial surface. Um, um, but I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't expand this to other planets um, and like look at the solar system as a, a system that is structured by privileged points. And then, uh, yeah, Mars could very well be a privileged point if, um, um, you know, there are certain properties of Mars that make it um, amenable to terraforming um, in some distant future, presumably. Um, but uh, um, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting suggestion. Um, I don't see any reason why why not. I think I think Simondon is is trying to um, at least it's, it's my take here that he's trying to point at something that's necessarily a much much broader conception than any any of a kind of particular location of reference. I don't think that kind of fits the what he's trying to get at with with um magic as this kind of primal unity um like if, sure we have places that might have symbolic value but that could be understood not as essentially magical but related to a kind of subsequent um category of development um i think uh i don't i don't know i just hesitate to, to take this this broad of a, a well the, a, a con conception of magical objects which are kind of objects of almost like religious fascination um as as though they would be magical because i think there might be like a possible conflation there that could be harmful in understanding his system more broadly i guess um whereas it, it does seem like he's pointing to something which in its very in a, pr a very primitive almost phenomenal way 
course core uh, cor is a structural correspondence between um, the subject and the object, which is an implicit structural correspondence. And here, I think it's it's kind of not not sensible to refer to like objects of like religious fascination necessarily, as much as something which is like more deeply fundamental than that, um, which could be kind of like an ex post facto um, naming or kind of recognition of of something, which I which I think he's trying to get at like in a more implicit primitive basis. I don't know that that's just my my impression. Yeah, I think um, that's a, a useful um, a useful reminder um, that we we might have a, a tendency to conflate magic and religion in particular, um, um, especially um, in a sort of uh, secular-ish world. Um, in most of the Western worlds, um, there's a um, yeah. I think I think we can maybe have a tendency to to conflate religion and and magic um, in a way that Simon Dom doesn't want to do. Um, so so we need to um, be careful to um, to keep in mind that that magic uh, sort of precedes that um, subject object split and um, and it's re always related to um, natural properties of the environment and the the relationship of the living being to that environment. Sorry, I know that's somehow less fun, but yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I think it's still compatible with the idea of uh, of you know the solar system having a, a structure of of this sort as well. Um, uh, in the same way that you can conquer a mountain, you can conquer Mars. Um, um, so obviously, um, uh, the the technical means for conquering Mars would would come much later in this. Uh, genetic process of development, um, but the sort of subjective uh, or, or pre-subjective relationship of the living, living being to Mars as part of their environment is something that would still um, uh, obtain, I think. But uh, yeah, I could be wrong. Maybe we can continue and, and learn more about this uh, mountain climbing as an instance of magical thought, if someone would like to read the next paragraph. I can. The ascent, the exploration, and more generally, any pioneering gesture consists in connecting with the key points that nature presents. To climb a slope in order to go towards the summit is to make one's way towards the privileged place that commands the entire mountain chain, not in order to dominate or possess it, but in order to exchange a relationship of friendship with it. Man and nature are not strictly speaking enemies before this connection at this key point, but are simply strangers to each other. For as long as it hasn't been climbed, the summit is merely a summit, a place that is higher than the others. The ascent gives it the character of a place that is richer and fuller and not abstract, a place through which this exchange between the world and man comes to pass. The summit is the place from which the entire mountain chain is seen in an absolute manner, whereas all the sights from all the other places are relative and incomplete, arousing the desire for the view from the summit. An expedition or navigation allowing one to reach a continent by a definite route do not conquer anything, and yet they are valid according to magical thought, 
because they allow one to make contact with this continent in a privileged place that is a key point. The magical universe is made of a network of access points to each domain of reality, thresholds, summits, limits, and crossing points attached to each other through their singularity and their exceptional character. Right, so uh, yeah, thanks for reading that and uh, feel free to get on the mic uh, if you have any comments or to, to post them in the chat um, as well uh, and we can read them in. Um, um, yeah, so this is um, further expanding on this idea of, uh, of the conquest of nature and what that means. Um, and so he wants to distinguish between this conquest um, aspect of, of, say, climbing a mountain and something like domination of nature. Um, and so this uh, um, climbing a mountain is not dominating it, but um, he even, it's a, a pretty, um, a pretty strong term I think he, he, he uses here and, and he describes it as a relationship of friendship with the mountain, um, which is um, a pretty interesting uh, suggestion. Um, um, and so, uh, yeah, so human being and nature are not enemies. Um, there isn't this sort of domination uh, relationship where either nature dominates human beings or human beings dominate nature, but they start off as strangers. Um, and then by, um, by reaching this key point, whether it's the summit of a mountain or, or the, um, the center of a forest or whatever it is, um, by reaching that point, human beings are able to um, enter into this relationship of friendship with the environment, um, which I think is a really interesting idea. And he even, uh, he actually sort of goes back on that, that uh, or he qualifies that uh, term of conquest that he had used earlier. Um, so he says that, um, uh, an expedition or navigation um, uh, don't conquer anything, um, but they have this still have this magical value in the sense that they um, permit uh, to to reach a continent um, at a at a to, at a certain privilege point or a key point. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph, and I can read. This network of limits is not only spatial, but also temporal. There are remarkable dates, privileged moments to begin this or that action. Moreover, the very notion of a beginning is magical, even if all particular value is denied to the date of the beginning. The beginning of an action that is meant to last, the first act in a long series of actions, would not in themselves have any majesty or any particular power of direction if they weren't considered as governing the duration of the action as well as the rest of the successful or, or unsuccessful efforts. Dates are privileged points in time, allowing an exchange between human intention and the spontaneous unfolding of events. Man's insertion into natural coming into being is carried out by way of these temporal structures, just as the influence of natural time is exerted on every human life as it becomes destined end. So uh, we, we've been talking primarily about spatial points uh, so far, um, and then here he's introducing the idea of temporal points. Um, so in, in many systems of magic, there is um, particular um, uh, particular moments that certain acts have to be carried out in order for the, the magical process to be successful. Um, like uh, it has to be at the new moon or it has to be done at midnight or, or it's uh, in relation to um, certain uh, astrological uh, signs or events. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a, a, this temporal structure. Uh, the time is structured by these moments that have a particular um, 
valence that a certain act has to be done in conjunction with uh, a certain moment in time. And then the, the next concept that he introduces or the next uh, idea that he introduces here is um, is the idea that um, the beginning as such is magical, even if uh, even separately from any sort of system of magical thought that involves this uh, relation to um, temporal points uh, of these outstanding moments. So um, what this brings to mind for me is um, like the cornerstone of a building um, where, you know, often in, if they're it's like sort of a, a public building, um, you'll have a, a cornerstone that's like sort of ceremonially laid by the mayor or some other some other public official. Um, and uh, there'll be some sort of uh, ceremony marking the beginning of the construction of this building. Um, and uh, so that something like that, it has this sort of magical um, structure in that it, it makes um, this beginning of the process into a, a special event that is distinct from all the other stones that are laid in the building. Um, and uh, it privileges this, this one point as the beginning of the process. And I think uh, just looking at the next paragraph, I think we're going to see more about that. Um, so if someone would like to read. I can go. Um, in current civilized life, vast institutions are concerned with magical life, but they are hidden by way of utilitarian concepts that justify them indirectly. In particular, official holidays, celebrations, and vacations, which compensate with their magical charge for the loss of magical power that civilized urban life imposes on us. Thus, holiday trips or vacations, which are considered ways for procuring rest and distraction, are in fact a search for old or new key points. These points can be the big city for the country dweller or the countryside for the urbanite, but it is more generally not just any point of the city or countryside. It is the shore or the high mountain, or else the border one crosses in order to arrive into a foreign land. The dates of public holidays are relative to privileged moments in time. Sometimes there can be an encounter between the singular moments and the singular points. I'll just get this uh, small one out of the way as well. Everyday time and space, in turn, serves as the ground to these figures. Dissociated from the ground, the figures would lose their signification. Holidays and celebrations are not simply a time of rest with respect to current life, through a halting of current life, but rather a search for the privileged places and dates in relation to the continuous ground. So yeah, this is something that you know pretty much every society has has holidays or festivals or whatever you want to call it that that happen on a certain date or at certain times, um, whether it's relation in relation to the seasons or um, astrological phenomena or whatever it is. Uh, so even even when they aren't um, magical in in like a strict sense, they don't have a relation to a system of magic uh, magical thought. Um, they they have this broader um, magical value in the sense that they uh, they're relating human existence to this temporal structure um, of privileged moments in time, um, and then those those privileged moments play the role of the figure in relation to everyday time, um, the rest of the of the time that is not the holiday or the uh, the festival, um, and though the everyday time takes the plays the role of the ground. And um, uh, yeah, so Leif Mason puts in the chat here, reminds me a bit of Arendt's concept of nat nat uh, sorry, natality uh, in those past couple paragraphs. Um, that would be something that you would have to expand on because I'm not very familiar with Arendt. Uh, 
um, just that that like human human laboring and human work uh, and and the the possibility of freedom by sort of sh by sh shucking off the kind of drudgery of work um, is is something where there's always a kind of contingent aspect of it that where it sort of it might happen as an event and it's always possible right so the that's like the use of the the term natality that there's the pos that there's always a possibility of a new beginnings or the introduction of novelty into the world like through um, just the concept for, um, feels feels somewhat connected to what Simon is saying here. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that would be something worth uh, looking into um, and see, and seeing if you can uh, sort of draw out that connection. Um, the other um, the other point I was going to bring up is this idea of the holiday um, in our contemporary society that he, he's um, pointing to here, um, where the holiday doesn't necessarily take the form of rest. Um, so it's not that you, so of course you're not going to work on your holidays, um, but you might, if you if you go on a holiday, um, uh, if you go on one of these tours where you visit like 10 cities in, in 12 days or something like that, you might be more busy on your holidays than you are um, at work in your everyday life. Uh, so it's not rest in that sense. Um, it's, uh, um, you're, you're sort of um, uh, putting yourself into these uh, privilege points, whether it's, you know, these, uh, these cities or the high mountains or, or uh, archaeological sites or whatever it is, some sort of tourist attraction <clears throat> that has this, uh, this power um, over its surroundings. And uh, you, you sort of gain, gain that power by putting yourself into that site. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting, um, uh, I guess, uh, corrective to our, our sort of general idea of the holiday as, as being about rest from work. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph and uh, I will read. The figural structure in primitive magical thought is inherent to the world. It is not detached from it. It is the reticulation of the universe into privileged key points through which the exchanges between the living thing and its milieu come to come to pass. Now it is precisely this reticular structure that is phase shifted when one passes from the original magical unity to techniques or religion. Figure and ground separate by detaching themselves from the universe to which they adhered. The key points objectivize themselves and only retain their functional characteristics of mediation. They become instrumental, mobile, capable of efficacy in any place and in any moment whatsoever. As a figure, the key points detached from the ground whose key they are become technical objects, transportable and abstracted from the milieu. At the same time, the key points lose their mutual reticulation and their power of influence from a distance on the reality that surrounded them. As technical objects, they have action only through contact, point by point, instant by instant. This rupture of the network of key points frees the characteristics of ground, which, in their turn, detach themselves from their own narrowly qualitative and concrete ground in order to hover over the whole universe the entirety of space and throughout all of duration in the form of detached powers and forces above the world. While the key points objectivize themselves in the form of concretized tools and instruments, the ground powers subjectivize themselves by personifying themselves in the form of the divine and the sacred, God, heroes, priests. A small translation point here is that in the French text, uh, it says gods, plural, not uh, God, singular. Um, but uh, I don't think it makes a, a huge difference to uh, to the meaning of the passage. It sounds like a significant 
difference? I think uh, I think here it's just it has to do with the sort of historical period that he has in mind uh, when he talks about um, religion, um, like uh, separated out from the uh, magical thought. I think he's uh, think, thinking of um, like ancient Greek religion, for example. Um, so is obviously a, a polytheistic religion in which there are many gods, um, uh, and then. Um, yeah, so the, the divine and the sacred within uh, ancient Greek religion takes the form of uh, many gods and many uh, sacred places where, rather than um, in monotheistic religions where you'd have one god and, and um, a, a structure with, well, maybe not one sacred place, but um, uh, like a, a, a most sacred place um, in distinction to less sacred places. So, yeah, he's doing something like a uh, philosophical uh, theogonia uh, as in Hesiod's work uh, that accounts for the birth of the gods. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he wants to explain, um, yeah, the gods and, and other religious figures the, of the divine and the sacred um, are a result of that subjectivation of the the previous magical relationship to the environment um and so yeah so he gives a a, a genealogy of of where gods come from uh, in human reality and then the other side of that uh, differentiation is the the technical object as the objectivation of of that relationship to reality uh, in in the magical mode of being um, and uh, and what, so what distinguishes um, the technical object from the the magical um, site is the fact that it's it's not um, the technical object is not tied to a certain place and time. It's um, it's movable. You can you can whether it's like a hammer or or whatever other technical object, you can use it anywhere uh, and any time. Uh, it doesn't. It's not tied to a particular place and time in the way that um, a magical relationship to environment is. Would someone else like to read the next paragraph? I could go. The primitive reticulation or the magical world is the source of opposing objectivation and subjectivation. At the moment of rupture of the initial structuration, the fact that the figure detaches itself from the ground is translated by another detachment. Figure and ground detach themselves from their concrete adherence to the universe and follow opposite paths. The figure fragments itself while the qualities and forces of the ground universalize themselves. This parceling out and this universalization are, for the figure, ways of becoming an abstract figure, and for the ground, a unique abstract ground. This phase shift of mediation into figural characteristics and characteristics of ground translates the appearance of a distance between man and the world. The mediation itself, rather than being a simple structuration of the universe, takes on a certain density. It objectivizes itself in techniques and subjectivizes itself in religion, leading to the appearance of the first object in the technical object and of the first subject in divinity, and there was hitherto only a unity of the living and its media. Objectivity and subjectivity appear between the living and its media, between man and the world, 
at a moment when the world does not yet have a complete status of object, nor man a complete status of subject. One can furthermore note that objectivity is never completely coextensive with the world, any more than subjectivity is completely coextensive with man. It is only when the world is viewed from a technicist perspective and man from a religious perspective that it appears that one can be said to be entirely object and the second entirely subject. Pure objectivity and pure subjectivity are modes of mediation between men and the world in their initial form. So we had um, before we had this this primitive unity of the, the human being and their environments. Um, and, and then now we have this split um, where we have subject and object appear. Um, so the, the initial figure of the subject is the divinity, and then the initial figure of the object is the technical object. Um, and uh, so religion is uh, um, the side of the, um, the uh, subjectivity um, and it's it's the universal subjectivity so that's I think that's why it's a divinity is the first figure of the of subjectivity here um, because it's uh, rather than being the the human subject which is particular um, in various ways it's uh, a divinity which is universal so it's not a human being that is the first subject uh, a human being we can imagine as uh, talking to themselves uh, in their heads, their minds, or hallucinating and uh, talking to themselves. Yeah, so it's uh, this is um, a particular notion of subjectivity that, um, like, um, I guess a more traditional notion of subjectivity would put the human being as the first subject. So yeah, that's precisely in in um, sort of inner dialogue or or. Um, uh, thinking uh, about yourself would be the sort of the, the principle of subjectivity. But here, Simon Don is pointing to um, the divinity as the the um, first form of subjectivity. Uh, so this would be something that um, is not limited to one individual human being um, uh, and also incorporates um, an aspect of the environment because the, the divinity um, as we saw in, in the last paragraph, the divinity is a is a result of the um, these privileged places in the magical mode of thought. So there's something retained of that um, extra human element in uh, the divinity as the first figure of subjectivity. That, that makes sense. And so I think, uh, like, in, in, concretely, it's uh, it, it means that we can't. Um, uh, we can't conceive of subjectivity arising in a, an isolated human being, um, which I think in more traditional accounts would um, uh, sort of allow for that possibility. Um, in, in this account, um, subjectivity develops only in a community that has these uh, relationships, to, this magical relationship to its environment, and uh, it's only through um, uh, uh, this phase shift or, or dephasing of the uh, of this relationship that you can um, develop subjectivity. This is maybe not a, a thread worth pursuing because it's we're, we're talking specifically about Simon Doan, but it, it does sort of remind me of the uh, the barbarian despotic machine in Antiedipus. It's, it feels like a sort of um, a sort of shift in in a kind of signifying regime or something like that would be another way to think about it. 
Yeah, that's a, a good a good uh, suggestion to um, to look into. Um, again, that's something that I, I haven't read in a little while, so it would be uh, I wouldn't be too confident in uh, making that comparison. But um, I guess in the sense that um, yeah, it introduces a, a new system of signification. This uh, this phase shift that brings about this the separation between um, uh, religion and uh, technicity. Um, it, it introduces this new system of signification that is structured by the relationship to this divinity, um, the divinity as the the universal subject. Um, um, yeah, so it, it's uh, uh, you can distinguish between the a, a system of sense in the magical mode of existence that's structured by the the key points, and then a, a system of sense in the uh, religious mode of existence that's structured by the divinity. Um, and then there's this sort of phase shift between them. Yeah, exactly. It's very well described. Okay, so we have, I think, about two more big paragraphs before the end of this section. So it's probably going to be a good place for us to stop once we get there um, for today. Um, would someone like to read the next paragraph? I can go again. Uh, so we're at uh, Technics and Religion, is that right? Are the organization? Yeah, that's right. Technics and religion are the organization of two symmetrical and opposed mediations, but they form a couple because they are each only a phase of, of, of the primitive mediation. In this sense, they possess no definitive autonomy. What's more, even taken in the system they form, they cannot be considered as enclosing all of the real since they are between man and the world, but do not contain all of the reality of man and world and cannot apply to it in a complete way. Directed by the gap that exists between the two opposite aspects of mediation, science and ethics deepen the relation between man and the world. With respect to science and ethics, the two primitive mediations play a normative role. Science and ethics are born in the space defined by the gap between technics and religion, following a median direction, the direction exercised by the precedence of technics and of religion before science and ethics is of the same order as that exerted by the lines limiting an angle on the bisector of that angle. The sides of the angle can be indicated by short segments, while the bisector can be indefinitely extended. In the same way, on the basis of the gap between very primitive techniques and religion, a very elaborate science and ethics can progressively be constructed that is guided rather than limited by the basic conditions of techniques and religion. So this uh, this comparison with the the angle and the bisector doesn't seem very illuminating to me, but uh, um, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I guess the idea is that you can you can define an angle using uh, just short segments, you know, A, B, C, um, and then when you bisect the angle, you can extend that bisector as long as you want. So uh, the that relation between techniques and uh, religion predefines the possible shapes any science and ethics can take uh, in their own historicity. Yeah, I'm not sure predefines is the right word, but it, it forms the basis of that um, relationship. Um, because so I, the reason why I, I, I say that predefines might not be the right word is because um, it seems that he's allowing for. Um, uh, a certain creativity of each of these modes of existence with respect to what comes before. Um, so uh, it's not the case that um, the state of technics and of religion um, uh, sort of 
leads to uh, uh, necessarily leads to a, a certain kind of ethics and a certain kind of uh, of uh, um, sorry, what's the other one? Ethics and science. Um, it's not that uh, techniques and religion um, uh, have this uh, sort of intrinsic determination that that produces science and ethics that correspond to them. Um, ethics and science have their own sort of creativity um, that is grounded in what comes before, but is not um, fully determined by them. Yeah, I see your point. I think uh, that might be why he's saying it is guided rather than limited. Yeah, I think that's a, a good uh, a good point about the, the the choice of words there. So, um, guided by that that gap um, means that there's a certain um, creativity or, or uh, flexibility that is that is inherent in that relationship. So there's there's a certain amount of uh, um, it's not a, a a full determination of one level by the one that, that precedes it. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph and I can read and this will be our, our last one for today. The origin of the split that has given rise to technical thought and religious thought can be attributed to a truly functional primitive structure of articulation. This split has separated figure and ground, the figure giving the content of techniques and the ground that of religion. While in the magical articulation of the world, figure and ground are reciprocal realities. Techniques and religion appear when figure and ground detach themselves from one another thereby becoming mobile, fragmentable, displaceable, and directly manipulable because they are not bound to the world. Technical thought retains only the schematism of structures, of that which makes up the efficacy of action on the, on the singular points. These singular points, detached from the world whose figure they are, also detached from one another, losing their immobilizing reticular concatenation, become capable of being fragmented and available, as well as reproducible and constructible. The elevated place becomes an observation post, a watchtower built on the plain, or a tower placed at the entrance of a gorge. Often, a nascent technique need go no further than modifying a privileged place, as when constructing a tower on the summit of a hill, or by placing a lighthouse on a promontory at the most visible point. But techniques can also completely create the functionality of privileged points. It merely retains the figural power of the natural realities, not the placement and natural localization on a ground that is determined and given prior to any human intervention. Fragmenting the schematisms more and more, it turns the thing into a tool or an instrument, in other words, a detached fragment of the world, capable of operating efficiently and at any place, and under any conditions, point by point, according to the intention directing it and the moment man wants it. The availability of the technical thing consists in being liberated from the enslavement to the ground of the world. Technics is analytical, operating progressively and through contact, setting aside the liaison through influence. In magic, the singular place enables action on a domain in its entirety, in entirety, just as it suffices to speak to, to the king in order to win over an entire people. On the contrary, in techniques, the whole of reality must be traversed, touched, and treated by the technical object, detached from the world and applicable to any point and at any moment. The technical object distinguishes itself from the natural being in the sense that it is not part of the world. It intervenes as mediator between man and the world. It is, in this respect, the first detached object, since the world is a unity, a milieu rather than an ensemble of objects. There are in fact three types of reality, the world, the subject, and the object, which is intermediary between the world and the subject, whose initial form is that of the technical object. Um, 
And there's a, a note here from the editor uh, saying there's a variation in the proofs, uh, which reads, there are in fact three types of reality, the world, man, and the object, intermediary between the world and man whose first form is the technical object. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of difference between those two forms, so I'm not sure why they felt the need to inform us of the, the variation. So in this paragraph, he's expanding on what he had introduced earlier about the idea of uh, the technical object as being detachable from the environment um, in a way that the, the magical privilege point is not. Um, and so that's what constitutes the, the, um, the technical object as an object. It's, uh, it's something that is distinct from the world. Um, and uh, it plays the role of a mediator between the human being and the world. So you, you act on the world through the technical object whether it's a hammer or a saw or whatever it is. Um, and that action is uh, is localized um, in a way that the privilege point is not. So the, the privilege point um, uh, dominates or, or rules over an area, um, whereas the, the technical objects can only operate at, at the one location that it is. Um, yeah, and, uh, and so there's a, a sort of progressive um, uh, detachment of the technical object from the environment. There's more and more um, possibility for um, the technical objects to operate at any place and any time. Just given where we started today, it makes, I think it does kind of make sense to have the footnote to say that if the original magical unity was between man and world, and then through that process of mediation that you've just described, there's subjectivation and objectivation, then you'd want to, then it does feel like Simondo is making a, or someone's making a useful correction here to say it should be subject at this point rather than man. Yeah, that's right. I, I hadn't noticed the, the, that they substituted um, subject rather than, than man um, uh, in the final form. Um, so yeah, that, thanks for pointing that out. Okay, so if there are no other um, comments on this last section, we can, or on the last paragraph, I mean, um, we can end here um, a little bit early for, for this week, but uh, I think we should probably stop at um, the point uh, before we, I think we should stop here before going on to the next uh, section. Um, so um, I will stop the recording. Um, and we can meet uh, again the same time next week, and we'll start with uh, section three. All right, sounds good. Thank you. Sounds good. See you next week.